0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Tonight, former Minister Alan Tudge defends his oversight of the Coalition's illegal welfare scheme known as RoboDebt. Debt. Also, the source of hundreds of millions of dollars in political party funding is revealed, but what of the vast sums made up of donations that came in below reportable limits?
2: It's left as a bit of an honesty system there, and given the amount of money in that private undisclosed bucket, I'm troubled by the idea that donation splitting is probably going on.
1: And around 800,000 fixed loan contracts are due to come to an end this year. So many home buyers are now bracing for variable interest rate pain.
3: I anticipate that if we have another couple of uh, increases, I'll be paying about an extra $1,300 a month more than what I am right now on my mortgage.
1: Thanks for your company. The former federal government minister in charge of the failed RoboDebt Scheme has admitted he was aware inaccurate debt notices were being generated, but he insists he didn't know the system was illegal. Alan Tudge has given evidence to the Royal Commission investigating the scheme that saw the federal government unlawfully raise nearly $2 billion in debts against more than 400,000 people. As Stephanie Smale reports, he's also denied he was running a scare campaign to get people to pay.
4: Alan Tudge was in charge of the human services portfolio as tens of thousands of debt notices were being generated and sent out. Despite mounting evidence, many of them were wrong. When asked by Commissioner Catherine Holmes if he knew inaccurate debt notices were being issued, Alan Tudge said by January 2017 he did.
5: Were you or weren't you? I was aware that the system, even from an income averaging perspective, had the potential to create inaccuracies. And I became aware of that in January.
4: The scheme continued until November 2019. But Alan Tudge told the Royal Commission he didn't question whether it was legal, saying it didn't cross his mind until he read it in the newspaper, years after he started in the portfolio. He pointed out it was ultimately the role of Cabinet who gave the scheme the tick in the first place and his departmental secretary to make sure things were above board.
5: It's unfathomable for a secretary to be implementing a program which he or she would know to be unlawful. It's just, it's unfathomable. You reach the senior levels of public service in Canberra, you're very senior, you're very experienced very good, and if they thought that there was an issue, they would have got that checked. Then if they discovered that there was an issue, that would be raised.
4: The Royal Commission heard that questions about the legality of the scheme just wouldn't go away, even raised in the keynote address at a national legal conference which human services staff attended. The Commission heard those staff raised the alarm with legal and departmental bosses, but still nothing was done. Here's senior counsel assisting the commission, Justin Gregory KC.
0: Not just any
1: individual, an eminent silk presenting a keynote speech at a national conference for administrative lawyers of which eight people from your department attend and of which your chief counsel is informed and your secretary is informed. Right. What do you expect your secretary and chief counsel to do, given your earlier answer about your experience?
5: Well, my expectation is that it would make them inevitably contemplate what the advice was that was given and reassure themselves that what they were doing was still lawful.
4: Mr Tudge eventually conceded his senior lawyer and secretary should have acted, but he denied the failure was ultimately his as minister.
5: I don't know that you can say that. I wasn't, to best of my knowledge, I wasn't even aware of the conference that was occurring, Mr Gregory. um, Do
1: you understand the concept of ministerial responsibility?
5: In the broad broad scheme that a minister is responsible for everything which occurs within her department, yes. But to say the way that you put it then, I was responsible because the chief legal officer did not speak to the chief legal officer of the Department of Social Services, I don't think he's right.
4: Mr Tudge strongly denied he was running a scare campaign in the media to get people to pay up. He told Justin Gregory KC his comments that people who owed money to Centrelink could go to jail were taken out of context by Channel 9's A Current
6: Affair.
1: The overlay of fraud made it more likely that people would engage with the system and repay the money. I disagree with that. There was a particular strategy to the process? I disagree with that.
4: Alan Tudge's senior media advisor, Rochelle Miller, told the commission yesterday the personal information of debt victims was released to journalists in an effort to deter them from speaking out. Today, Alan Tudge denied that was an ongoing strategy, insisting he wanted to correct the record in one instance. The Commission continues.
1: Stephanie Smale reporting there. Almost a year since the federal election campaign and Australians are finally able to see what the political parties spent and what they received in donations. Australian Electoral Commission data shows Labor received $124 million in donations, while the Liberals declared $106 million towards their election bid. More than three quarters of all the money came from just 10 donors sparking renewed concerns about the influence a small number of high-powered people have over our politics. It's also reignited calls for reform of the political donation system to one that's more transparent and equitable. Catherine Gregory reports.
6: Elections are pretty expensive. According to the Centre for Public Integrity, all Australian political parties spent more than $439 million for the 2022 federal election, the Coalition outspent Labor despite losing the contest, but it's actually where the parties got the money to spend in the first place that's interesting and somewhat controversial.
7: Donations data is opaque and difficult to interpret.
6: Stephen Main is a journalist, shareholder activist and commentator. Despite the lack of transparency around political donations, there's still some key findings like who the biggest donors are.
7: I mean, you've got... A few notable billionaires, I mean the Pratt family uh, gave almost two million dollars to each side. And of course you've obviously got the the unions um, which have given uh, well over twenty million dollars to the Labour Party and uh, close to a million dollars to the greens.
6: Labour received one hundred and twenty four million dollars in donations with Mr. Pratt, the billionaire cardboard king, its biggest donor. The Liberal Party got $105 million. Its single biggest donation came from its fundraising arm, the Cormac Foundation, as well as wealthy individuals and corporates. Clive Palmer received $117 million, all of it coming from his own mineralogy company.
7: And then you've got uh, a few individual corporates, the usuals like the Woodside, ASX, West Farmers, having a bet each way, giving just over $100,000 to each party. And many of those funds from corporates are from the cash for access regimes where the parties give access to their policymakers, ministers, in exchange for subscription fees from major corporates.
6: That's why Stephen Main is one of many who's calling for an overhaul of how political donations work. A 2018 Grattan Institute report revealed how political donations can buy individuals, organisations and corporates access and sometimes influence over public policy. But political campaign professional Bruce Hawker, who used to work as a lobbyist on the Labor side, says it's not quite that bad.
3: I think they sometimes will get access through fundraising events. I don't think they can actually buy access with it. And politicians generally don't know who's donating to the party and who isn't in my years I never felt that anyone was getting preferential treatment because you know they'd paid a lobbyist or they'd made a campaign donation do
6: you think the way that the political donations system runs now do you think that it's a good system or do you think it requires some change
3: Oh, look, I don't think it's a very good system at all. And, of course, it gives rise to the sorts of questions and doubts that you expressed to me. And I think members of the public, you know, genuinely would have a concern about that because of the level of opaqueness that surrounds political donations.
6: Federal Independent MP Andrew Wilkie says political donors do have too much influence in Canberra, and he's stunned to see just how much money was given to political parties last year.
5: I mean, the fact is when... When donors hand over large sums of money, they expect a return on that investment. And and who knows how much influence now some of these donors have, have got in Canberra. And when you consider that some of these donors are a pretty questionable character, you know, you've got fossil fuel companies, gambling companies, tobacco companies, uh, you know, what what sort of influence have they got?
6: He's calling for widespread reform.
5: It's regrettable that in the last parliament I did seek to move a private member's bill to do just that but it received no support from the government nor the opposition. Um, I will move that same bill uh, in the second sitting sitting week this year and hopefully get uh, some support for it.
6: That will include a lower monetary threshold for donors to disclose their sums, real-time disclosure of donations and rules around stopping donors from giving multiple small donations.
1: Catherine Gregory reporting. So some huge disclosed donations to political parties, but there's still well over $100 million in undisclosed donations that we are aware of. So how are donors and political parties getting this so-called dark money through the system? I was joined earlier by Kate Griffiths, a researcher at the Grattan Institute.
2: So parties have to declare the total amount of money that they raise and spend in the financial year leading up to the federal election. And we can see that parties collectively spent $418 million uh, in the lead up to the 2022 election. So we've got that overall big number of how much they can spend. Then they have to declare particular elements of of their income. So donations is is one of them, and we see declared donations – in the data, and there's also a couple of other categories like public funding that are declared. But those categories that are declared don't add up to that total expenditure, or or their total income for that matter. And so there's a there is a big chunk of of money, private undisclosed money. And in the 20 lead up to the 2022 federal election, that was 119 million dollars. So um, out of expenditure of 418, income of 400, uh, there's there's private undisclosed income of 119.
1: So, how is that $119 million falling under the radar?
2: So, there's a couple of reasons why you don't have to disclose a donation if it's considered a small donation. Uh, But what you and I might consider small donations is not what's considered small under the rules. So the disclosure threshold for donations is $15,000 and anything above that threshold has to be disclosed. So a $10,000 donation, which honestly sounds huge for most of us, is considered too small um, to have to disclose.
1: And say that $10,000, could that be donated repeatedly, you know, every day for a month, for example, by a single donor?
2: That is the much bigger problem. Exactly. You can potentially donations split. So take a $100,000 donation and break it into $10,000 $10, donations. And given the amount of money in that private undisclosed bucket, I'm troubled by the idea that donation splitting is, is probably going on.
1: What about other ways of of getting money to political parties like fundraising, dinners and the like?
2: So fundraising dinners are a major source of funds for the political parties and they, they don't actually call these things donations. Even though uh, you might spend, let's say, $10,000 to sit at a table with a minister and, and have the evening to bend their ear, that's not considered a donation. It's considered an other receipt and we know that there was $45 million Um, collectively that went to the political parties in in these other receipts that were private money. But we can't always see where that has actually ultimately come from.
1: So even though we have these disclosure laws, it's clear that the system is still somewhat murky, perhaps considerably murky. What can we do to to make it more transparent, to, to sort of allow voters to see who's giving this big money to political parties?
2: Well, the first thing we need to do is lower that disclosure threshold because we do want to ultimately know all the donations that are big enough to care about. And Labor does have a proposal on the table to lower the disclosure threshold to $1,000. It's currently sitting at that $15,000 mark, so that would be really helpful. But I think we need to go further than that. We we need to make sure that the onus is on political parties to actually aggregate multiple donations to prevent that donation splitting behaviour we were talking about. And then, Real-time disclosure is the other part of the transparency picture because ultimately we're talking about this nine months after the federal election and it's the information that voters should have when they're actually going to the polls.
1: And how likely is it, do you think, that we could get those sorts of reforms in a timely way?
2: Well, I'm hopeful in the sense that state governments can do it and have done it. So we have lower disclosure thresholds in all of our states and we have real-time disclosure in some of them. There's some signs that Labor might be willing to go further in terms of looking at capping expenditure during election campaigns. That's something that they've talked about in the past. Um, I hope they'll come back to that idea because limiting expenditure during election campaigns is ultimately a much stronger way to reduce the influence of money in politics. It goes further than transparency because it reduces parties' dependency on donors in the first place and limits that arms race to raise more and more funds.
1: Kate Griffiths, great to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. That's Kate Griffiths, a researcher at the Grattan Institute. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, a push to increase penalties for mishandling radioactive materials after a tiny capsule goes missing in Western Australia.
8: If it is lost and if we never find it, we cannot just say it's okay because it's radioactive. Its half-life is 30 years. So it will be radioactive for next 300 years.
1: Well, it looks like good news ahead. The Reserve Bank predicts inflation may have peaked at the end of last year, but cost of living pressures won't ease for everyone just yet, with economists predicting the RBA will announce another rate rise next week. At the same time, hundreds of thousands of fixed loan contracts are set to end this year leaving homeowners facing a spike in their repayments. Bridget Fitzgerald reports.
9: Financial counsellors are used to giving advice to others, but they're not immune to financial woes of their own.
3: strange to think that, you know, potentially I'm going to be, have to tighten my belt and things will have to change in my house.
9: Kevin works as a financial counsellor in Perth's northern suburbs. He's bracing for a jump in his mortgage repayments when his fixed rate comes to an end this year.
3: My mortgage is fixed on about 2%. um, That is due to come off the fixed in July this year. Um, I anticipate that if we have another couple of uh, increases, I'll be paying about an extra $1,300 a month more than what I am right now on my mortgage.
9: The Reserve Bank estimates around 800,000 fixed loan contracts will come to an end this year, exposing borrowers to a sharp rise in their monthly repayments. Speaking at a parliamentary committee into the cost of living today, the RBA's Marion Kohler explained. But that is not 800,000 households necessarily. There are people who have more than one loan facility. But that's the really rough back-of-the-envelope calculation, as I understand it. Kevin, who's used to counselling people experiencing mortgage stress, says while he and his wife will need to make some changes, no overseas trips this year, for instance, they will manage.
3: Me personally, um, I'm just seeing what we can cut back and try and see what we can pay off before before we get to... um, so d-day as it as it is look if if we cut back a little bit we'll be absolutely fine i don't think that i'm in dire straight as as many people you know there's a lot of people out there who are not going to be comfortable and are really really going to struggle
9: Although, as the RBA and many economists point out, it's a struggle that's necessary to bring inflation under control.
10: That's ultimately what the Reserve Bank was aiming for in raising interest rates. They want people to spend less, they want to reduce the pressures of demand on the economy.
9: Nikki Hutley is an independent economist.
10: Well, we know there are a lot of people who've been on fixed rate loans coming off this year and even next year. And for them, they're going to get that 300 basis points, so three percentage points interest rates are higher um, on the official rates. That means their mortgages are going to go up in one big hit and that's really hard. If you're on a flexible rate, you've been taking those incremental increases. So, it's going to be a big shock for a lot of people, but we know that a lot of households have overpaid. When rates came down, they didn't stop paying, so they've got savings buffers in their mortgage accounts, so hopefully most people will be okay.
9: Looking ahead, the Reserve Bank says inflation likely peaked at the end of last year and will soon begin to ease, though it will still be some time before Australians start to see a subsequent easing in the cost of living. Most economists are tipping the RBA will announce another interest rate
10: rise next week. Nikki Hutley again. We're still going to see price rises this year, but they're going to become more modest. If you remember, they have a target of 2 to 3% We don't expect to get there this year, but hopefully by the middle of next year, the combination of very tight monetary policy and other factors in the world will bring inflation down.
9: Meanwhile, house prices have dropped for the ninth straight month. New data from CoreLogic shows prices fell a further 1% in January from December and are down 7.2% year to year. However, Eliza Owen, CoreLogic's head of Australian research, says the downturn comes off the back of record high prices.
4: So overall, home values across Australia are down about 9% from a peak um, back
9: in April 2022.
2: But that was off the back of about a
9: 29% increase. The problem will be for those forced to sell due to higher mortgage repayments who are then facing a drop in the worth of their homes. Kevin, who works with those living on the margins, knows there are many who will find themselves in this
1: position.
3: Some people bury their head in their sands and the bank will take the action but some people will just not be able to deal with it and will just end up surrendering their, their house to the bank.
1: It's financial councillor and homeowner Kevin ending Bridget Fitzgerald's report. It's been two years since Myanmar's democratically elected government was overthrown in a military coup. And Australia has just today imposed sanctions on 16 officials from the ruling junta, as well as two military-controlled entities. Myanmar's government in exile and the United Nations are urging a more coordinated international response to support the nation's transition back to democracy. Rachel Hayter reports.
11: On this day two years ago, Myanmar's military started its bloody crackdown on the people it should have been protecting. Tom Andrews is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the country.
6: At least 2,900
0: people have lost their lives and that number is probably much higher. At least 17,500 people, political prisoners have been detained. At least uh, 38,000 homes and clinics and schools have been burned to the ground.
11: He says the world has failed the citizens of Myanmar.
0: It is also uh, the second anniversary of the failure of we, as an international community, to respond uh, effectively and responsibly to this, this crisis.
11: Today, Australia has responded. The Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, has announced sanctions on both people and entities.
10: This includes targeted financial sanctions and travel bans on 16 individuals who are key figures in the military regime, and targeted financial sanctions on two military-controlled co- entities.
11: She says Australia will continue to monitor the actions of the regime.
10: We will be looking to see improvements for people on the ground and moves towards the restoration of democracy, including credible elections.
11: Yang Lee is a founding member on the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar and a former UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the country. She says Australia misunderstands what's actually happening in Myanmar.
12: The military has not taken over. It's not a military regime. At uh, my organisation, we've done a mapping of how much control the junta has. The junta has only less than about 20% of effective control. The NUG is not a parallel or shadow government or underground government. The NUG is in-country. Tun Ong
11: Shui is the national unity government representative to Australia. He's welcomed this country's response, but says the sanctions must be extended to have any effect.
8: I would like to suggest to include the Ministry of Gas and Energy because that ministry making the huge revenue for the military junta from the oil and gas sectors. And also, I would like to request the government to consider to cut off the the jet fuel supply chain.
11: The junta now has dozens more helicopters, supplied by China and Russia.
12: UK just announced uh, sanctions on aviation fuel and more countries need to follow suit. But the people, despite of all these aerial attacks and targeting schools even, and children have been killed inside the schools and in homes, the resistance is really holding firm. Above and beyond uh, the sanctions, there needs to be deliberate humanitarian assistance.
11: Zoe Daniel is an independent federal MP and former Southeast Asia correspondent with the ABC. She says now detained Australian academic Sean Turnell is free. This country can take more action against the junta.
4: I think we have a bigger role to play, actually, not only with sanctions, but also with the conversation about what is happening in Myanmar with our other Southeast Asian neighbours.
11: She says there are other state-owned companies being used to funnel foreign money into Myanmar to fund military activity.
4: There are a couple of large mining companies, Myanmar Mining 1 and 2, uh, and they continue to enable the flow of dirty money into the country and I think they should be sanctioned also. There are millions of people living in incredibly difficult circumstances. There are thousands of people in prison, thousands who've been killed, murdered by their own government, including
1: children. Rachel Hayter reporting there. Well, you've heard the phrase a needle in a haystack, but what about finding a capsule in the outback? The colossal search for a tiny radioactive capsule continues in Western Australia. Experts are perplexed at how it could have disappeared from a truck and now there's pressure to increase the penalties for mishandling radioactive material. Isabel Masali reports.
0: Jorgen Jensen admits having a town on a major highway comes with risks, but he didn't expect this. The Shire of Mount Magnet president is just hoping a tiny radioactive capsule is nowhere near his town.
3: And I suppose because it's so small, people are tending to think, well, you know, the odds are not great that it's fallen in my backyard, for instance. But I would have liked to have seen maybe the town centre and either side of these towns on the highway sort of search first just to make sure that that risk wasn't there for townsfolk.
0: It's been a few days since authorities announced a massive multi-agency search for a dangerous capsule the size of a tic-tac. It disappeared last month, somewhere during its 1,400-kilometre journey between a Rio Tinto mine site in the state's north and Perth. Authorities, experts and the public have been left asking how could this possibly have happened?
3: I am you know, concerned that something like this was able to be in a situation where it fell off a truck and it's not ideal considering all the major public businesses or the businesses that the people of town use and also the public amenities are all on that main, main street.
0: Today attention turned to the penalties for those who fail to safely store, pack and transport radioactive materials. As it turns out in Western Australia it's a $1,000 fine. The WA Greens and Liberals have criticised the penalty with the State Health Minister later announcing it will be reviewed. Here's Amber Jade Sanderson. Look, our priority at this point in time is locating the lost item. Uh, It's absolutely correct that it shouldn't have been lost. Uh, having said that, the current fines system is uh, uh, is unacceptably low uh, and we're looking at how we can increase that. Uh, the Act, uh, which governs uh, the, count, the Radiological Council, which is the uh, regulatory body led by the Chief Health Officer, was actually developed and written in the 1970s. So it probably was a lot of money in the 1970s and this sort of technology wasn't even imagined. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, also criticising the penalty.
8: It shouldn't have been lost. That's the first thing. And second, yeah, of course, that figure's ridiculously low, but I, I suspect that uh, it's ridiculously low because people didn't think that such an item would be lost.
0: Dr Pradip Depp is a senior lecturer in medical radiation at RMIT University. He agrees that penalty is nowhere near enough compared to other states.
8: Well, it's an accident, they're saying, but I think it's accident caused because of... Uh, negligency or a kind of overconfidence or something like that, because we know that our guideline has got definite rules and regulation for uh, radiation transport.
0: Since the search began, more specialist equipment has arrived from interstate to aid the search for the capsule. Not many experts have hoped it will be found, but Dr Deb believes it must be. He says those who simply pass by the capsule shouldn't be so concerned though the risk is someone now or in the future may pick it up. Or if it's stuck in a car tyre, it could come close to people for a period of time. Authorities have warned having it close to you is the equivalent to receiving 10 X-rays in one hour. And one of the long-term risks of exposure is cancer.
8: If it is lost and if we never find it, uh, it is not. We cannot just say it's okay because it's radioactive, its half-life is thirty years. So it will be radioactive for next three hundred years. I think we should not just give up that okay, it's there, nothing happened.
0: Rio Tinto's CEO, Simon Trott, has apologized for the alarm. He says Rio Tinto engaged a third-party contractor with appropriate expertise and certification to safely package the device in preparation for transport and went on to say, we have offered our full support to authorities in the search and we have launched our own investigation.
1: Isabel Massali reporting there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, have a great night.
0: I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Over the last decade, dating apps have become hugely popular, with millions of Australians now meeting each other online. Today, an expert in communications on last week's government roundtable on what threat the apps pose and how they can become safer. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the
9: ABC Listen app.